can you be integral without an integral map? I think it's sort of the interesting question. Can you be, can you be naked without your maps and still have that kind of integral consciousness? Hello, friends. This is Marco V. Morelli, and you're listening to Infinite Conversations, a podcast about art and life. This is my second episode, and I'm thrilled to have as my guest today the independent scholar, writer, and artist, Jeremy Johnson. Jeremy has a master's degree in consciousness studies from Goddard College, and he's also the current president of the International Gene Gebser Society, which is partly what brings him on the podcast today. We're working together on a project called A Theory of Everybody, which is a platform for social poetics and planetary thought. And this podcast is a part of that platform. Jeremy also has a podcast uh, coming out called The Electric Symposium, which will be on the Infinite Conversations Network. And we're also working on a book club. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The book club is called Lit Geeks, an unusually hardcore book club. And our first big reading, our first group reading, is of a work by the Uh, 20th century German philosopher and poet Jean Gebser. The book is called The Ever-Present Origin, and it's about the emergence of what Gebser calls an integral structure of consciousness uh, out of the long history of human consciousness and culture going back to archaic times. Gebser traces the evolution or the unfolding or the mutations of consciousness Uh, from archaic to magic to mythic to mental, rational, to integral uh, structures. And we both, Jeremy and I, have uh, a long history with uh, integral thinking, integral consciousness. We've been students, we've been practitioners, we've been scholars, we've been artists of that. And in this podcast, we reflect on the relation between Gebser's work and uh, other expressions of uh, integrality, particularly Ken Wilber's work, which is kind of how Jeremy and I first met. So Gebser, interestingly, serves as both a point of convergence as well as a point of departure for our various projects. And we discuss why we think he's worth reading or rereading and why he's worth reading together which is what Lit Geeks is all about. So I hope you'll enjoy the conversation, and I hope you'll consider joining us for Winter of Origins, a collaborative reading of Gene Gebser's The Ever-Present Origin. So, you know, Gebser and this whole integral thing, gosh. Um, Well, it really began in like the early 1930s with Gebser in the winter, so I just found it really appropriate that we are kind of doing this sort of uh, back to Gebser's origins of this book and his life's work. And then also, you know, um, kind of like recapitulating that through our own winter, going to the beginning again of Gebser's work before Wilbur, before the integral scene, before any of that stuff that was just, you know, Wil- um, Gebser in Spain writing about Rilke and uh, poetry. And... um we're going back to Gebser's work to kind of uh, look at that and sort of look at it again with fresh eyes without any of the um, 
the stuff that's happened since then, I guess, in some ways. Um, but then again with it, because, you know, we, we've sort of come out of the integral theory world, um, integral consciousness. Uh, Sri Aurobindo is another guy that Gebser talks a lot about. So there's all these really interesting figures that had a kind of similar idea um, about this transformation of consciousness. But I've, I'm excited about this because we're finally kind of going to the the origins, literally, of it li- in a literary sort of way. And then also we're going to, um, I guess, the kind of spiritual and artistic origins of it, too, with uh, with uh, his kind of experiential dimension where, where Gebser had this kind of mystical, poetic experience in Spain, in the winter in Spain. Um, and then for me personally, it's, it's my, my birthday's in January. So it's kind of like origins of origins, my own personal origins, January 27th. So I'm kind of like, it's thematically all kind of circling around this whole idea of going back to your origins and what that even means and, uh, what that means for transformation to go back to, you know, your original face, so to speak. What does that actually mean to, to transform your, yourself and your consciousness. So there's a whole bunch of things that are swarming in my mind. Maybe we can kind of exfoliate that as we go along. Yeah. Um, it's let's, uh, let's talk about how we came to this point, you know, where we are going back to some sense of origins or going back to reading this work by this philosopher who's relatively obscure uh, you can't even buy his book on Amazon right now. It's it's out of stock. Uh, you can buy it in other places, and we'll have some information about that later. Uh, but it's not like you know Gebser's all the rage. It's not like there's this any kind of uh, you know uh, scene around uh, Jean Gebser. There's no marketing apparatus, you know, for his work. Uh, there's no real commercial apparatus around around his work. So nobody really knows him uh, except for the, those who know him. And the, as I kind of see it, that there's maybe two, you could kind of divide it in a couple of ways. Uh, one is that there are those who know Gebser just because they encountered him through some means uh, at any particular point in the last 30 years or so. But most people I know who know Gebser know him through Ken Wilber. Uh, because Ken Wilber in popularized Gebser's stages in the evolution of consciousness, uh, going back from archaic, magic, mythic, mental, rational, and then integral. Uh, and Wilber often throws in postmodern there. And he, Wilber has his own sort of meta you know, framework for what those stages are. And he often uses Gebser as a way of summarizing them um, and as a way of uh, corroborating, I think, some of the other... Uh, developmental sequences or evolutionary sequences and stage conceptions that you know he has in his model, his like meta model, uh, and so a lot of people have gotten through Gebser, gotten to Gebser through Wilbur, but they've mainly gotten the stage conception, like just that idea that consciousness has evolved, you know, from archaic to magic to mental, uh, magic, mythic, mental, um, and and then the integral stage. But not necessarily kind of the 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 deeper dimensions of what Gebser's work offers. Uh, so part of what I think that we're doing is part of what I would like to do is kind of to bracket Wilbur's interpretation or Wilbur's summary 
of Gebser. Uh, just and not not to not even to really pass any kind of judgment on it, you know, but just to kind of like put it over here on the side, bracket it, and say, okay, this is how we've come to know Gebser, many of us. Um, but that may not really reflect the depth that is in Gebser's work. So let's just kind of hold that over here, you know, and and then actually read Gebser as Gebser. In other words, not read Gebser from the perspective of of Wilbur or from any other, you know, in meta-interpretive schema, but go to the text itself, as it were. Like go to, you know, what his own, what his own uh, articulation was of how he saw, uh, you know, the consciousness evolving and how he saw our, our present situation. How did you come to Gebser? And how did you learn of his work? And how does that, you know, how has that been informed by, or how has it been different than, uh, what many people think of as integral theory or integral consciousness or the integral worldview? Mm. Good question. Well, uh, you know, the first time I think I, I came across Gebser's work was technically in a book by Daniel Pinchbeck. Um, although I, he didn't, he didn't stand out for me in the book, uh, too much until I read Wilbur. Um, and it was through Wilbur that I was just curious, like, all right, who's this Gebser guy? Like these these uh, stages, magic, mythic, integral. Um, you know, this is where Wilbur got these very important sort of uh, strata of consciousness, evolution of consciousness from. So I was just curious to check him out as well as Aurobindo. So what I did was, um, gosh, like seven or eight years ago, maybe longer, uh, I just checked out Everpresent Origin from the library. It was a big old heavy book hardcover out of print and um on the first page uh, i guess immediately what struck me i remember i was sitting on the train um heading into new york city heading into manhattan for some undergrad class and i was reading <laughs> ever present origin on the train and uh just something about the writing struck me as um extremely potent uh, as if there was a kind of presence in the words itself. And that struck me as a kind of literary talent or skill or some kind of potency with Gebser's work that intrigued me. And it, and it just sort of turned me on to that, uh, just to whatever he had to say. Um, I felt there was something important in it. So as I was reading the first few chapters of Ever Present Origin for the first time, after having been really into Wilbur for a while and really digging this whole idea that yes, consciousness can transform through, you know, historical epochs. And there's this kind of, coherency to, to to all of these different theories about emergence and development. Um, I was really into that for a while and really excited about it. But when I experienced Gebser for the first time, something about his um, understanding of what that means, what emergence means, uh, what time means, because time, emergence, and development all kind of are intersecting with each other. Uh, it really just changed the way I thought, and it kind of altered my conception of of what development actually means and what evolution actually means. And there was a kind of poetic mysticism right at the beginning of Gebser's work uh, and a kind of urgency and, and presence with, I mean, he begins the book with saying, you know, we're in a crisis and here we are, you know, in a crisis more so perhaps than 30 or 40, 50 years ago. Uh, so there was a prescience in Gebser, uh, a kind of potent latency that kind of only in my opinion anyway, became more relevant as, as we get 
closer to the kind of crisis that we're in right now, where there's an urgency and uh, uh, potential collapse and all the things that have happened in the past 10, 15 years from Occupy to the uh, awareness of climate change to, uh, you know, um, social stratification. There's all of these issues that are kind of bubbling up. And uh, for, you know, he spoke to that in, in the pages, in the very beginning, you know, the very opening words uh, about, you know, the crisis will either, you know, we will fulfill time or time will fulfill us and either we'll kind of transform through this crisis or we will be sort of uh, um, <laughs> succumb to it, you know, and just kind of collapse. Uh, but he's not negative. He, he's not negative and he's not positive. He's just sort of, he's getting to the heart of something that seems to be truer than just being an optimist or a pessimist or an nihilist about our times. And that kind of... Uh, energy in his work really uh, drew me to it and it felt very true. Uh, and I, I loved Wilbur in in the sense that he was saying, no, no, there's a transformation happening. There is reason to be hopeful. There is reason and cause to, to believe in development and emergence. Uh, whereas Gepster may be more like a poet, just puts you in contact with whatever that reason is. It's not a reason, it's sort of a a substance or, or a dimension of um, kind of poetic insight that is harder to explain, but it's it's present and it's potent, and you can contact it. Uh, and he seemed to be able to do that with these older structures of consciousness, you know, the magic, the mythic, the archaic, uh, as well as the integral. He seemed to kind of bring these things to life in a way that I hadn't experienced before with, with Wilbur. Uh, and to me, that was essential and sort of, you know, I couldn't come back from that. I had to keep going. Uh, and, and eventually, you know, reading Gepser, reading Arbindo, all these other thinkers, it just sort of became a kind of integral thinker, but not necessarily an integral theory thinker. And uh, I, I guess I guess that's where I, that's where I came to all of this from. And uh, it, it sort of has uh, helped me remain a little bit more in that sort of in-between space between different fields and different theories. And I think reading Gepser in himself as Gepser, as Gepser's work in his world, just listening very deeply and, and um, intently to his uh, <laughs> overview of, of, of the structures of consciousness without necessarily imposing anything from the outside on it can be very powerful. And even if it's just an exercise, you know, a few months of just doing that, I think it can change the way um, you 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 have a sensitivity to, to this these structures of consciousness in a way that maybe not seeing them seeing them from the outside and seeing them abstractly may not do. But at the same time, you know, Wilbur is is do his own. You know, you read what do you call it? Uh, Sexicology, spirituality. You read you know his schematics. You understand his way of thinking, and it's very different. It's like a whole other world. It's a whole other cosmology in a way of understanding it. And then when you read both of them and you give them their, both of them their due, it's just a kind of really interesting process starts to happen where you find yourself somewhere in between. But uh, mm -hmm. I don't want to ramble too much, but that's sort of how I came to it. That, that's actually really cool. And it, I think it gets into an, an issue I've been thinking about, which is language. Uh, and that's a weird thing to say. I mean, it's not just something I've been thinking about. I, it's like I'm, constantly <laughs> uh you know grappling grappling with language i'm constantly uh, as a writer and as a poet it's so fundamental like to my sense of being and and i think that 
the way that we relate to language has something to do with the differences, perhaps, between what we might encounter in Gebser and what we might encounter in Wilbur. And I want to be very, uh, I want to qualify that. What I mean is that Wilbur is a brilliant writer and he's an extremely lucid writer, like at his best, you know, in SES, Sexology, Spirituality, in um, Up from Eden, in a number of other books. Uh, and whether or not I think you agree with his ideas or with his framework or with, you know, him as a person or, you know, him as a cultural figure, um, I believe that he's a great writer. However, I think that he approaches language a little bit differently than Gebser does uh, or than, you know, a, a poet uh, would. And the way that I would make that distinction is I think that Wilbur is more of a pragmatist. I, I think philosophically he's probably better situated in the pragmatist tradition, uh, and, but also linguistically or in terms of like how he uses language, I would see him more pragmatically. And And I think that Part of that has to do with the fact that a pragmatist take on language has to do with like the meaning of words being how we use them. And so there, there is a sort of relationship to language where you're using it to express something. Uh, and, and the words have value and meaning insofar as they're accomplishing that goal. And the meaning is established really in the fact that understanding is produced in the recipient of your linguistic utterances. Uh, so this might be something to explore like more deeply. I just wanted to, I just want to touch on it just to kind of propose some way of distinguishing like what is actually different between a pragmatic approach to language and a poetic approach to language. And I think that the poetic approach to language, it's not really even an approach. It's not like saying I'm going to use language to express this idea or to communicate this concept or to... Uh, articulate this framework, the language itself is alive, I think. And language, the language itself, at the risk of mystifying it a little bit, language itself has its own motives and its own essence and its own uh, things that it wants to say. And, and then, you know, we relate to it or it relates to us to say those things. And it suggests the right word. And the right word has a potency to it and has a depth to it that becomes kind of inexhaustible. You know, like the, a real poetic utterance can't just be, I think, reduced to a pragmatic uh, transaction, you know, between a speaker and, uh, and language and a meaning and in the recipient's uh, head. So perhaps like what you're getting at with the sense that you find, feel in Gebser is that there's some different relationship to language that allows the poetry and the creativity of language to operate in a way that's not just pragmatic, uh, that, you know, has other possibilities that suggests other, um, you know, po possibilities of being, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I hesitate to go too deeply down that path just because I don't want to mystify it. Like I don't, I don't want to, put it on some pedestal as like the better way of doing it or something like that, because pragmatics is incredibly important and can be in poetic in its own way. Uh, like Wilbur is poetic in, in many passages and he kind of has these flights of, of poetry in his work 
Uh, so I'm more pointing to just like sort of the dominant way that mm-hmm. that I would experience those two different texts. Now, I have not read much of Gebser. Uh, I've just kind of gotten a taste from it. And I was really turned on to Gebser by you uh, through just little things that you've posted on social media, uh, quotes you've posted here or there, comments you've made. Uh, you know, when, in doing research on Gebser, I've gone back and Googled, and you keep coming up through, uh, you know, YouTube video recorded or a post on beams and struts or, or, or whatever. And, uh, and so I'm sort of going more, less on knowledge and more on a hunch, more like on an intuition of what I think is possible. And through the little bits I've gotten, there's a sort of element of trust here. Like we're putting a lot of time and energy into, into organizing this reading. And I, myself, I'm going into the unknown. I have not re- you know, I, I have not read this book before, you know, and, and we're getting, you know, a hundred people plus have signed up so far and maybe there'll be a hundred more or so. Uh, and I'm saying, you know, let's read this book together. I have not read it. I just think that this is an interesting direction to go in. Uh, and you've kind of been on this track already for, for a while. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there, there's a, there's a couple of just, uh, dovetails with, uh, what Gepser was doing in Everpresent Origin, and um even before then i mean you know uh he was he was a sort of scholar of language and poetry and that's how he kind of started out he he was fascinated by the poetry of rilke and you know what was rilke saying that was so new and different than had ever been said before what what kind of insights was he was he bringing to uh the german language and the sort of european world and um you know, for for like twenty years before Ever Present Origin was published in the thirties, forties, uh, you know, he was writing about about poetry and language. He was writing about you know uh, the arts and the sort of transformation in the arts that were taking place in new forms of experimental artwork and uh, new the new grammar. I, I forgot exactly because because all of this is not translated into English yet, um, but that should be changing actually pretty soon with Rubido Press. They're going to be fully translating. As a quick note, they're going to be translating uh, some of Gepser's earlier works now into English, which will be great. Uh, but from the little bit I've read and the little bit that's been translated, um, you know, language was his his obsession. That was where he was focused. And as you read, I'm pretty sure you'll notice, and you probably have noticed, that, that in Ever-Present Origin, uh, you know, he takes a lot of time to sort of unpack the meaning and the etymology of certain words. And, um, there's a kind of rigor in that in the sense that I'm not an entomologist, so he may have been, I don't know, maybe there's been corrections and updates and, and, and errors in, in, you know, 50, 60 years ago writing this sort of stuff, but um, sort of plugging into the etymology of words and understanding what they mean and the kind of worlds they bring forth, that's sort of essential to to this whole this whole text, uh, Ever-Present Origin. So, um in you know about halfway through the book, he's sort of exploring this whole idea of this new articulation, this this new statement. Uh, I think Heather Fester was talking about that a little bit in her presentation at the Gebser conference this this uh, fall. This new statement, this new way of expressing things. So so language expression and and world, you know, the worlds that you bring forth through language are extremely important for Gebser, and that was his way into all of this weird esoteric stuff, you know, consciousness transformation, the history of consciousness. Uh, he was looking at art. He was looking at language um, in order to reach and touch that and to, to have it inform what it meant in a way the structures weren't, 
necessarily a result of looking at all of these different theorists. It was a result of looking at all of these different um, sort sort of feeling tones of artwork and and kind of going, well, what is this saying to me? What is this? What is this speaking? Um, and then trying to create a descriptive uh, schematics instead of a kind of prescriptive according to kind of like a structure or like an on a, like I know get, uh, Wilbur's not really trying to do that, but you know, without touching the kind of like uh meaning sort of interior poetic dimension, um, it's, it's not, it's incomplete. Uh, so, so I guess speaking to your point about this whole th- balance between the sort of poetic and pragmatic, uh, you really kind of need both. The kind of uh, in order to really create a coherent and complete theory, uh, which understands that it's not complete. You know, it's, you're always going to need to experience it in order to really understand it. And then the experience itself um, can generate infinite language and infinite pragmatics and infinite schematics. Uh, so, so even the theories themselves are kind of just sort of placeholders. And Wilbur says that too. You know, they're all it's all maps, mm-hmm. but. Um, but I, I guess I guess uh, to bring in a little like religious studies, can a map be also kind of iconographic? Uh, can a book be artistic that's talking about you know the evolution of consciousness, and in a sense kind of put you in touch with that evolution yourself? And I think a book can because a book is a is a creation, it's a work of art, and um, even theory can kind of be poetic in that sense. So the lines begin to blur somewhere in the middle, and I think Gebster is a really good example. Uh, of of that sort of, if you have the kind of sensitivity to it, someone who's sort of a, a, po- a poetic writer, but he's also extremely pragmatic and, and schematic in the sense that he kind of lays it out very carefully. It goes into fine detail, breaking down the language, analyzing it, and sort of, but at the same time letting it live, uh, rather than just sort of killing it and dissecting it. But uh, I, I think I'm uh, sort of rambling now, but... <laughs> That, yeah, we can co-ramble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote an essay called uh, The Left-Hand Path of Integral Thinking. And in the essay, I was proposing that one way of understanding, one way of configuring uh, Gebser was uh, vis-a-vis the integral sort of scene movement that, that originally kind of brought us together, uh, is that He's expressing something more like a right brain or left-handed approach, which is more uh, poetic, more holistic, more intuitive, uh, versus the uh, left brain, right-handed approach that would be more pragmatic, more instrumental, uh, you know, more rational, more more straightforward, and. Of course, it's not just one or the other. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not because it's not a very strict uh, separation. It's more of like a yin and a yang. But the idea that I wanted to propose in that essay was that we've become accustomed to, to favoring, uh, let's say, the, our right hand, our left brain, the rational, the framework, the pragmatics, the impact of the um the scientificity uh of uh of of our thinking and less so to the intuitive and the literary and the poetic and all you know everything that would correspond with um the left hand and the point i wanted to make i mean ultimately just like you said is you 
it's best to have both use of both of your hands. You know, ambidextrous is is best uh, because that gives you the most versatility. It means that you can flow between different modes of thought, different modes of consciousness, uh, different ways of sort of applying yourself or receiving, and uh, and at the same time, I thought that because we've been so dominant. Not not just not just kind of culturally, like we're a right hand dominant culture, but also I think individually, like many of us, you know, through our work, through uh, you know the just the things that we have to do to exist uh, economically, to, uh, we tend to be we tend to prioritize one over the other, and it would be helpful, I think, it would be interesting at the least to shift the emphasis and uh like not to always you know like the 50 50 exact balance is probably not possible uh but we could emphasize one or the other like move one way or the other and like treat that sort of as the dance that that we do intellectually and it might be time now i feel that it's time for me at least and i am sensing that it's that like this could be something that other people would feel appropriate you know feel like drawn to is to is to prioritize that left hand you know that intuitive and poetic and and um holistic so anyway i mean i i i don't know again like i'm probably rambling a little bit on that and i'm not exactly sure where, where to where to go with that i just want to present that sort of as one orienting way of like thinking about it is like all right you've gotten used to we've gotten used to like using a framework and we've gotten used to you know thinking scientifically and thinking literally uh and thinking linearly and uh and like what if we ground what we're doing like what if we go back and see if we can recover some other source of inspiration and ideas and strength in this whole other side of our being that tends to get short shrift uh, in our culture. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's a sort of, um, sort of, uh, that was the, not really the point of all of the talks, but it was sort of the generative theme of, of the last Gepser conference uh, architects of the integral world. Uh, a couple of the, the lectures, including mine, Heather Festers and a few others that are talking about directly about sort of the, the left-hand path and sort of um, poetry and language and uh, religion even. You know, there was even a, a lecture on Catholicism and sort of integral manifestations in, in the Catholic Church. So there's a kind of um, uh, emphasis now, which I think is a good direction for, for the integral community or even... Um, in the integral theory community, I'll mention uh, that in a second, but just sort of a poetic sensibility, a new a new way of thinking that's not necessarily as uh, pragmatic and isolated. But I think this is catching on in popular culture too, and just sort of interdisciplinary work and um, just sort of the the mingling of arts and sciences together in the imagination, or or the sort of idea that that any kind of knowledge, whether it's scientific or artistic, is a kind of assemblage of different forms of things coming together in a kind of messy, poetic, organic way, as much as it is um, a brilliant, synthesized, and, and artif artifice of, of structure. 
uh, there's also this kind of like underground rhizome that's sort of like mingling with all the other roots. And uh, I think that could be very helpful going forward. And I think it's sort of emerging now anyway, in, in systems of knowledge and in uh, popular attention. But, um, you know, Chris Durkee's brought up a really good uh, point in his whole, uh, his essay about the integral centaur at the uh, integral theory conference in the summer where he's basically saying, you know, um, you look at integral theory and, uh, you know, Wilbur passed SES, you know, 1994 or so. Uh, is very different than Wilbur in the 80s. And, and Wilbur in the 80s was using images and myth uh, and the body. And his definition of what it meant to be integral and integral consciousness was much, was much more imaginative and body-centered in the 80s. So let's go back to that. Let's revive that. Maybe that maybe there's something important there that's that's been missing. Um, so I feel like your desire to, to bring this left hand forward is definitely in sort of a convergence with what Chris is doing and then just what I think is emerging in culture right now, which is, is a kind of complexity of thought that uh, is not as systemic or systematic, but it is looking for the patterns that connect. And it is looking for even in, in the kind of left, uh, even in the, sorry, yeah, left hand um, or just left brained rather analytical thinking um, at looking at all these big systems and these big patterns and all of this big data and then seeing the kind of imagistic interconnections that emerge out of that. You know, people are thinking like that now. So I think it's becoming uh, more essential as we go forward to kind of just organize the, the information overload that we, that we have. Um, and as useful as uh, a very systematized approach like, uh, like Wilbur, where you, you understand the structures as these points in this map that are color-coded and have a kind of mimetic statement around them, like orange, green, blue. Oh, blue is religious, right? Mythic, uh, you know, uh, morality. But like these quick, quick fire ideas that are, are that are orient you as a, you know, as a little dot on a map would are really important. But to be able to 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 go into that beyond that. I mean, can you really, in the sense of like bringing in another completely different thinker now, Robert Anton Wilson and reality tunnels, can you really go into that? Can you really go into quote unquote blue or mythic consciousness or religious consciousness and understand that for a few minutes and not just pin it in a map um, and still understand there's a coherency and there's a kind of integrality to it? Can you be integral without an integral map? I think it's sort of the interesting question. Can you be, can you be naked without your maps and still have that kind of integral consciousness or uh, coherent, I don't know, emergent consciousness that's allegedly happening. Can you have that without the map? Because uh, if you can't, I don't know, is it, is it really sinking in? Is it really taking root in you? Uh, and that's where the sort of the left-hand path comes in, where it's like, you know, you got to have to kind of actually jump in and do it for a while and live it and, uh, and throw everything out, you know, yeah. Uh, 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 what was it called in the mysticism? Mysticism, uh, the cloud of unknowing, right? You have to kind of forget everything, even the good stuff, even the even the teachings, and kind of go into it. I think a lot of people are emerging into this place, uh, and by a lot of people, I mean very very few people, but a lot of people relative to what we've been calling the, the integral community, and, and that's a place where they've got the map, they've got the framework. And they more or less have it, you know, maybe not down to the nth detail of the, you know, 24 distinct uh, zones of, um, 
you know, an action or <laughs> of inquiry that, uh, that, that Sean Hargens might elaborate. Uh, but they've got enough of it to basically be, you know, conversant with it, to be able to use it, to be able to, you know, look at a cultural expression and say, okay, that's green or that's orange, or, you know, to make use of some of the distinctions like states and stages of consciousness or the pre-trans fallacy or any of the other useful distinctions that are brought forward by the map. And, and you get to, I think, a point where uh, you have the map, you have use of it, you're able to pragmatically kind of, you know, make sense of things. Uh, but it's still, there's still a self and, and a framework and then a, an object. And you're still in this configured into a particular mode of relationship where you're standing as the self using this object or framework and applying it to some phenomena. And then kind of situating that phenomena within the map and thereby, you know, believing that you understand it. Um, and, or potentially, you know, the, the, I, let me put it this way. The, the tendency that I've seen in myself and in others is that if you have some kind of framework, some interpretive scheme that you can substitute that for understanding. And I, what I think that you are just have just been saying, which I agree with, is that that reality tunnel, actually when you go into the reality tunnel, it sort of destroys that whole configuration, you know, of, of self and map and object. And it's consciousness changing. It's more than consciousness changing it's like self changing it changes the boundaries of where yourself is and how you relate to things and how you relate to others and so like we were reading this book together and like on the one hand part of the point of reading the book is to understand the book and part of the point is to learn something to uh you know, maybe pick up some new ideas, maybe to, you know, change your thinking and so forth. But there's also something in the way that we engage the book and the way, because we're doing it as a community, the way that we engage each other uh, while reading the book, that becomes its own kind of reality tunnel, I think. And that becomes an opportunity not just to kind of like gain a tool, you know, that you can apply to an object, but to actually become transformative in some way. You know, I don't want to overpromise that exactly. I don't want to make a promise about like transformation, but that's what I'm interested in. You know, like I'm interested in changing the way that I actually relate to the world, changing the way that I relate to others, and like having a different, creating a different space. Uh, and you know, part of my motivation for doing that is that I think that the space, the intersubjective space created by integral theory as a map that you use in a particular way, I think has become exhausted. I don't see how much is really kind of left to emerge in terms of the 
just the way that people relate to each other and work together. Uh, if the framework is your main kind of is your main unifying element, I think the unifying element has to be something else. And and I'm not saying that it's Gebser necessarily. Like I don't, I'm not looking to Gebser to provide a new way of thinking or a new framework or a new ideology that could bring people together. It's not the object. It's not the kind of ideas themselves. It's that there's something about this book that I feel can provide a kind of grounding for an, for some, for something else, Hmm. like for some other basis for community. I don't think that you can base a community on a theoretical framework. Is I think what I'm saying. I, that's that's the conclusion that I've come to. Mm-hmm. You know, through my in, engagement with integral theory, through my working with Ken Wilbur, and through our experiment in doing this at Integral Institute ten years ago, uh, which you know blew up and in, in in basically I think succeeded in a lot of wonderful ways. It brought a lot of people together, but then as an entity into itself, it it ended up collapsing. And so what is the basis for, bringing, for, for people working together and relating to each other authentically and you know, having communities that are healthy and that are in touch with the unknown, you know, the, the emergent? That's, part, that's really what I'm interested in, actually. Gebser is in certain ways an, occasion, an opportunity to do that. It's an occasion to do that. Like he provides, I think, a unique presence, you know, like a unique kind of gift a gift that I feel can allow us to do that, but doesn't mean that we're therefore going to all become Gibsarians and suddenly like that's the whole basis for everything that we do, like, you know, uh, and and for our whole, you know, community and our our meaning making. Like I see it as one voice, one uh, work that we can engage with, but I want to engage through a lot of other works, through a lot, number of other thinkers and writers and artists and, filmmakers and scientists and so forth like it's not it's not just Gebser so so but what's the is there some larger unifying framework or something there isn't exactly I mean that's the whole point is that if you have like one ideology one unifying framework that's supposed to bring you together I mean inevitably I think you're going to end up like picking it apart and it's going to end up like excluding all kinds of things and it's become it's going to become a tool that gets used in ways that uh end up destroying you know the the fabric of of those of your relationships um so in a certain way like we have to like let i think that not be defined like let the unknown let the um immeasurable and the incalculable and the mystery like have a central place within our uh communities uh if we want them to keep alive like and if we want them to remain open to the unknown remain open to to growing i'm hoping gebser can be a help with that just because the way he's talking about it he's he doesn't want you to use his 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 stuff like he's just sort of like there's a thing happening guys there's a thing in our consciousness happening look at it and it doesn't have a theory or a schematic around it but it's a thing and like just Understand it, articulate it yourself. So I, I'm hoping Gebser is a good t- um, first note to kind of send off our, our our conversations, just to 
to help us start to go, no, what does it mean? Like, what is, what is our relationship to time and space and poetry and art? And how is that changing? Because there's no central schematics that can really inform that. There's just many different people who are talking about it. So if it's a real thing, then it's, it's like Thompson always talks about it. It's like it's owned by nobody, but articulated by everyone. So you have to look at all of the different articulations and not kind of um, be too rooted in any particular one. Even if it's Gepser, he can't be too rooted in, in Gepser, even though there's really cool insights to get from him too. So I think as like a practice run, this is really good for us to do <laughs> because we're doing something, not to like fluff us up too much, but we're doing something that is kind of rare because most of these communities center around particular individuals. And we want to not do that. You know, we, won't, we don't want to just bring Gepser or Wilbur or Steiner or somebody like we kind of want to be in the middle of things because I think that's just that's the best place to be. That's the healthiest place to be. So I agree with you. I think it's it's we really need to be there if we want to function the way we want to function as a as a community and as a as a publication. Mm-hmm. Um, and to to move forward, like we don't need to keep doing that. Like we're in the internet age. There's all these different thinkers. We know there's these different reality tunnels going on. So you know, we have to be able to navigate that now rather than just be, you know, Wilbarians or Gepsarians or whatever. So, hmm. yeah. Well, maybe I should say a few things about a theory of everybody and like how sort of like I'm conceiving the whole thing fitting together and why, like what the ecosystem is even supposed to be about and how it all fits together. So, uh, <clears throat> so a theory of everybody is platform for social poetics and planetary thought. And I call it a platform because it's a place where other things can happen. It's a place where multiple different things can happen, different modes of interaction, different activities, different publications, different conversations. And so it's open in the sense that in the future, new things can happen on it. Uh, other people can become involved with it. I envision it being this place uh, for not just community, but community, networks, projects, uh, and emergences. And so, but starting there, there's three specific projects that I wanted to put forth and that I want to unfold and launch over this coming year. And I'm going to kind of work backwards. Um, the, the first one, the third one, I'll say, uh, is a journal. And the journal is a place for original writing and original art, original thinking, original expressions, for uh, poetry, for fiction, for essays, for articles, for reviews. The journal is called Metapsychosis. And that word is meant to evoke the sense that minds can be communicating with each other in these mysterious and profound ways and that that sort of relationship and that matrix of relationships that they're in uh, can manifest in new forms of creativity. So we're going to be working on this journal Metapsychosis and launching it sometime in the coming few months uh, in some form. Uh, and, and that to me is sort of like the, the place for real original thinking and art. Uh, and then 
the other uh, project is this podcast network. It's a network because there's more than one show. There's more than one series. There's the, the, the first two that we're starting with are, are one called Infinite Conversations, which is kind of the name of the meta name as well. And that's one that I'm hosting. That's what this show is. And, and then your show is called? The Electric Symposium. <laughs> the Electric Symposium, uh, which is a play on your previous podcast, which was called The Electric Liar. Not one who tells fibs, but <laughs> lyre is the ancient Greek uh, stringed instrument uh, representative of, of poet, poets and uh, artists, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Orpheus played a lyre, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so those are the first two shows, but I imagine other shows coming online. And it's a place where people like you and me uh, and other individuals who like to talk and to be in conversation, to have guests and to dive deep into subjects, uh, can, can do so and have a place to do so, and then invite others to be part of that same conversation. Uh, so, so the other piece of Infinite Conversations is a discussion forum, also called Infinite Conversations. Uh, it has different facets, you know, different expressions, but the discussion forum is a place that ties together discussions on the journal, Discussions on the you know pieces that are published there, and discussions on on the podcast. And uh, I want to say more about this, and I'll say more about this at another time. But it's it's connected to social media. It's connected to Facebook and to Twitter and to Google Plus and to other places. But it also is independent, and I feel like that's an important piece of it. Uh, but that's another conversation. Uh, I just want to kind of highlight that I think having an independent platform, even if not everybody in the world, even if it doesn't have 5 billion users, uh, is still important. And I want to come back to why that is the case, but at another time. The other thing that ties into Infinite Conversations is the book club, and that's Lit Geeks, an unusually hardcore book club. The reason for the book club in the whole ecosystem of things is that you know, we can have original pieces, we can do original writing and original work, original media, and we can have conversations, but I, but I feel that it's important to have a culture that reads. Like I, I think that literary culture or reading culture is just foundational, you know, to uh, to an intellectual and a free culture. Uh, I think that um, you know, in our age, uh, particularly this digital age, the internet age, where our attention spans are becoming ever diminished and where our awareness is ever more fractured and fragmented amongst, you know, multiple inputs and sources, uh, that revalidating or reestablishing the centrality, the importance of reading a book from cover to cover, you know, and taking the time to be alone with the book and to dive deep into the reality tunnel, which a book embodies, is, I think, part of what we need to reclaim and to preserve you know, as intellectuals and as creative beings. And in addition to that, just the practice of reading, the importance of that culturally and for that matter, neurologically, like it changes our minds to read books in ways that like our digital experience doesn't. Like our digital experience kind of has these detrimental effects on our on our consciousness and our reading experience has a different effect. I think it has a consolidating and a, a sort of synthesizing effect on our consciousness. Um, but in addition to that, books are ways of bringing new ideas in. 
and their ways of bringing new thinkers in, new writers in, new artistic voices in, new theories in, etc. And if we can read widely and deeply simultaneously in community, I feel that we're going to keep ourselves fresh. Like we're not going to get stuck into just reading one thinker or just one set of ideas or one kind of limited canon or one genre. Like if we really make it part of our larger ecosystem to read books, real books, diverse books from, you know, that, that could become, you know, that come from all over different times, different cultures, like that, that's going to be an important part of, of like always bringing new ideas in and also bringing new people in because people become attached to or interested in specific writers and thinkers. And, and they may then want to read that a book uh, by that person with us. And then they'll bring their energies into it and their experiences and input and style and aesthetics and, you know, everything else that a human individual brings just because we've done the outreach, you know, through lit Greeks to, to read a book by uh, Ursula Le Guin or, by David Foster Wallace or by um, Salman Rushdie or whoever it is that we might bring in. So, so that's the, the idea of the platform is that there's a theory of everybody. There's uh, a place for original writing called metapsychosis. There's a place for conversations uh, called infinite conversations. And that takes place both via podcasts and online and asynchronously in a forum and on social media. So all these different media and then there's a place to bring in new people and new ideas, and that's the book club. And that's our chance to really dive deep into something other than ourselves, right? to bring us outside of our bubbles. And I thought that, you know, the, the idea of reading Gebser, like it just was a seed. And you introduced me to it, like through, I don't remember exactly what it was, but you posted something or shared something. Something about Gebser may have just been a quote or a meme, and it just occurred to me that, you know, if we do this book club as one of the things we do under, you know, theory of everybody, maybe it'd be good to read Gebser. You know, maybe it'd be good to go back to, uh, to like the or you know the origins of integral thought and integral thinking. Like I'm coming out of this integral community, this integral framework, and I'm wanting to take that in another direction, and you know, kind of like just. You know, one way in my essay, The Left-Hand Path of Integral Thinking, one analogy I use is between the blues and rock and roll. It's like you get the Beatles and you get the Rolling Stones and Elvis and you get this rock and roll, but it's all based on the blues. And like in certain ways, Wilbur and this kind of new, you know, newer generation, this newer crop of, of integral thinkers and integral theorists are kind of like the rock and roll. You know, they're like the commercially successful and the popular and the well-known but they're sort of like drawing on the blues. And the blues are like Aurobindo and Gebser and Teilhard de Chardin. And so let's go back to our roots and let's see if we can kind of grow in a different direction, you know, grow some new shoots, grow with a kind of renewed vitality because we're tapping into some source, some, some source material. And, um, and that gets into one last thing I want to say about this. And that's that you know, one thing that's been important to me with doing this whole platform is to do it in an open way and to do it in a way that can, is inherently open. Uh, by that, I mean that it's not owned by one particular individual or one particular company, one corporate entity, that ultimately it's, it's owned by or it's, it's not owned by anybody, but it's, 
it's owned in a different sense by the community that makes it happen, that participates in it, that contributes to it, that sustains it, and that, you know, is nourished by it, uh, that it is co-creative, it's co-created. And, and so I want to call this podcast as a title, I'm calling it Open Sourcing the Origin, because part of what I want to do is that go into like origin, go back to source, and then open it up. Like say, all right, we're going to read this. We're going to bring all these ideas into the mix, these different writers into the mix, different books into the mix. And like, let's see what we can do with it. You know, let's, let's create a field for creativity where, you know, we may, we have certain ideas and we're going to kind of push certain things forward. And somebody comes with a great idea that we are able to connect with them. You know, we're able to provide something, some platform where they could, they could uh, make that happen uh, and connect it, you know, and, and others in our network others in our community can can uh can participate in in that as well so um so our first read our first official real event is this reading winter of origins and we're going to be unfolding that over you know starting this year starting this month starting this week <laughs> um so why don't we share a little bit about how that's going to work uh Jeremy, you're you're a co-host, and I'm kind of deferring to you as president of the Jean Gebser Society, and you know, as my partner in this project, uh, to to you know to lead this. So, how do you see this going? Well, uh, as far as scheduling is concerned, we we start on January 11th. That's on a Monday coming up, and um, basically, we're going to have everybody hop on Infinite Conversations, the forum, the discussion board. Uh, the community center and just introduce themselves, say hello. It's, it's, it's almost like, um, in one aspect, it's, it's sort of like a class in the sense that there's going to be a, a, a board where we can all talk on a forum, uh, threads and conversation threads that can always be posted. New topics can be posted. Uh, we're going to be starting with a couple of, you know, introductory posts to saying hello and sort of setting the tone for the reading of the book. But we're going to be going through the book about, um, 75 pages a week or so, uh, which sounds a lot, but, um, or maybe not. We'll, we'll see. We'll see with the pacing. Uh, but, um, it seems to be a, a healthy amount, a healthy chunk of, of words to ingest and digest over a week. And, uh, we'll be going for about, um, according to my schedule here, about nine weeks with a, uh, little catch up week in the middle during week five. And then the last week, week nine is, is a shorter week. There's not as much to read. So um, we're hoping that's enough time for everybody to get through the book. And um, basically, the book is divided into two sections. There's a part one and there's a part two. And the part one was, was originally published in 1949. And it's sort of like, um, you know, Gebser's inspiration for writing the book. And then he kind of takes you through this sort of historical tour of, of uh, not really a tour, but experiential tour of, of consciousness evolution. And then... Uh, with part two, he kind of goes into in depth into sort of the contemporary transformation. Uh, and I'm hoping in, in part two that, you know, readers can kind of really dig into that and in a way respond to Gebser, who's writing this decades ago and, uh, get a sense of, you know, is what he, is what he is saying, is it relevant still? Is, are there interesting works of art in the contemporary space, you know, that are, that are connecting to what he's talking about? Um, are there new things or are there things that are contrary to what he was saying? 
I'm really excited about especially part two and in the latter weeks because we can really wrestle with the book and respond to it and kind of articulate something new with it. So um, that'll be going on from, from January until March 19th, I believe. March 19th, which uh, I think is at uh, the Equinox, if I'm not mistaken. And if it's not on the Equinox, it's right around then. Mm-hmm. Um, I can look it up too. Uh, but yeah, so it, it's time-wise, and the book, is, as you'll learn, is, is a lot about time and understanding different experiences of time. It's kind of fun that we're going to be ending. All right, Sunday, March 20th is the Equinox. So, uh, so maybe uh, we can have like a final hangout that day. But uh, speaking of hangouts, we're going to be doing these um, uh, where every week uh, on Wednesdays we're going to be getting together and just talking about what we're reading in the book and uh, what we've read so far and uh, really just having nice conversations about it. It doesn't need to be formal, uh, but we will be having occasional evenings where we'll be joined by Gebserian scholars, folks from the Gene Gebser Society, uh, academics, writers. I'm going to try to bring on William Irwin Thompson and Gary Lockman and Aaron Cheek, who's uh, who signed on, who would love to participate and talk about his research. He's actually the guy who's, who's translating Gebser's uh, work from German to English, his collected works. So um, a lot of exciting folks, and there'll be plenty of ways to plug in and just sort of enrich your experience. And uh, I've never read this book with people before. I've always kind of read it by myself. So uh, I'm really just excited about going chapter to chapter, uh, section to section with everybody, with the context of other readers who have their eyes on the page and are pointing things out that I might have missed um, and, and bringing in points that, you know, about today and about culture today and language today and art today that uh, I would have never thought before. So uh, I'm just really excited about the collaborative element of this whole thing. Uh, And and part of what Gebser does, too, is like he looks at contemporary art. I mean, he's looking at Picasso and Rodin, like other, you know, artists that he was engaged with, and not just artists, but also scientific theories. He's looking at like, you know, quantum theory and relativity and, and drawing the connections between that and, and these artistic expressions and, and then tying into this, you know, idea of, of time, what he calls the eruption of time, I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N, eruption of time into, into, into consciousness. And, uh, and that whole dimension of it is really fascinating to mm-hmm. me. I mean, the whole, the question of time is, uh, that it, to me has been just uh, a constant source of fascination and vexation (laughs) um, frustration sometimes but like ultimately i keep coming back to it as like how do i experience time what is time what you know is this to have to be present uh to be here now and to have a past present and future uh and to be uh and to to, you know to know that i'm gonna die and and what you know how how we really grapple with time seems to be just so fundamental to our lived experience. So to like, to be diving into a work where the dimension of what time is, which can seem so abstract, but where that becomes concretized in some way, uh, I think is going to be important. And, uh, and so, you know, we have this schedule. Uh, We're starting on January 11th. Uh, we're going to be, to reiterate what you're saying, be doing a discussion forum. We're going to be doing hangouts. We're going to be doing podcasts on the Electric Symposium. 
And we also have social media connections. We have a Facebook page at LitGeeks. Uh, so uh, people can find us there. We'll, we'll set up a Twitter account, I think. Uh, we haven't done so yet exactly. Uh, but we're going to find different ways, I think, to interface with people. Uh, the main way that people can connect, though, right now, if you haven't already, is to sign up at litgeeks.com. You go to litgeeks.com and then uh, forward slash winter dash of dash origins. And there's a, a page there describing what we're doing. There's a sign up uh, form. Uh, so we'll be able to communicate with you and, uh, you know, share how you can participate. And, uh, and we're recording this now. This is, what, January 2nd. Uh, so in a few days, we're going to open up the forum. Uh, probably by the time you're hearing this, the forum is going to be open at infiniteconversations.com. And, um, and then we're going to get started. We're going to dive in and, and read. And, you know, LitGeeks, I gave it a subtitle. It's called An Unusually Hardcore Book Club. So, you know, we, we, it is, there is a hardcore aspect to this. I mean, this is not necessarily easy stuff to read uh like first it's written in, it's in originally written in german and so there's a a whole linguistic complexity that is just there because it's german uh and because gebser is in a conversation with a lot of other thinkers with a whole tradition you know of of philosophical thought and german philosophical thought you know specifically uh and then, it's in, and then it's translated into English, so there's a little awkwardness, like I think, just in that move. And I think one of the interesting things will be to see how Aaron handles the new translations and kind of what he finds in his process of, of going back into Gebser's earlier works and bringing them into, into English for the first time. Uh, like maybe that'll even change like some of our understanding of how, you know, of, of the ideas in the ever-present origin. I mean, that would be interesting. Uh, there's a couple of people, I think, who may be reading this in German, uh, and like fear. Jen, yes, yeah, who who may be able to shed some light on issues of translation that you know uh, have are part of the text and which are, you know, are us English only speakers uh, or non German speakers uh, at any rate uh, wouldn't be aware of. Um, but uh, but we're going to do this, and it's going to take some commitment. I mean, I think we're asking people to make a bit of a commitment here. Uh, to to read those seventy five pages a week and try to keep up, you know we're we're going to provide a catch up week in the middle and there'll be some time at the end. But I think the conversation will best be served and the overall experience will best be served if people like make a little bit of a commitment, set aside the time, and say I'm going to fucking read Jean Gebser, the ever present origin. I'm going to read seventy five pages a you know a week or so, whatever's you know assigned uh, per the schedule, and, and you know try to keep up and. And participate, you know, like start a topic, reply to a topic on the forum, uh, you know, come join us for a hangout, uh, check out the podcast, listen to those, and you will get out of it what you put into it. Yeah, and post your questions, too. I mean, if you're confused as, as hell, just to say that, just go on the forum and say, what the hell does this passage mean? Just go on and just, we'll respond because I, I guarantee you, like, I've, I've read this before at least not linearly but in chunks and i've been confused every time i've read gepser and it's you know it's it challenges you and it's good that it challenges you and it's good that it's not easy and it's not meant to be so don't worry if you're confused like throw your confusion into the conversation because that's the only way you'll get anything from that so uh 
yes, it's it's hardcore for a reason, and uh, it could be enjoyable that way. But it, it's it's going to be a little bit of a of a commitment on all of our parts to to read this yeah. cover to cover. Yeah, totally. And we're you know we're putting a lot. I mean, we're we're throwing ourselves into this. We're organizing this whole thing, and you know, and we're going to re- be reading it, and we're going to be on the forums, and we're going to be doing the podcasts, and we're going to be doing the hangouts, uh, and and. You know, uh, there's something that I think just when you give yourself to something, you know, like a project like this, a uh, project of understanding, you know, and a project of communication, a project of relationship that it bears fruits that are can't even be known, you know, until you've really dived into it and given yourself to it. And it's free, you know, there's no charge to participate. Uh, we're doing this in the spirit of the gift. You know, we're doing this because we want to do it, <laughs> basically, uh, because this is, you know, this this fulfills us, I think, and uh, and so you know, we we're not we don't want to charge for it. Uh, we do want to invite you to to support us in doing it, and uh, and not just to kind of donate to us, but kind of to look at the bigger picture. Like we want to keep doing this. We want to do this reading now. We want to follow it up with other readings. We want to do our journal. Uh, we want to host more podcasts and more conversations. And we want to create a space that is enjoyable, that's nourishing, that's open, that's free. Uh, but we can't do that for free because we live in a capitalist society and we have to pay our bills and we have to pay, you know, buy food and we have families to support and so forth. So the way that we're handling that is that we are creating what, what we're calling a gift economy. And this is an old idea. Uh, there's you know, a lot that um, we can say about and that we will, I think, in future episodes of the podcast and other places. But the idea of the gift economy is that it's, that it's an economy that where the community supports, supports the whole thing. Uh, and those who can do and those who can't don't have to. Uh, uh, but may contribute in other ways. It's not strictly a financial economy. It's an economy where where all the different levels and dimensions of our being can be sort of integrated from the economic and the financial and material to the intellectual and the creative and the spiritual, and where those aren't seen in strict opposition to each other, where you know we just look at the realities that we want to do this full time and give ourselves to it, uh, and the only way we could do that is with some support. So we're asking people to support us, uh, but we're not requiring it. Uh, and we're going to see how that goes. You know, I, I, we have, you know, we're going to we're going to we're going to put our faith basically in in each other and and uh, ask you to help us out uh, to continue doing this. Uh, but not but do it for your own self-interest as well. Do it because because you want to create and be a part of a gift economy where, you know, your own uh, your own creativity and interests and soul has a place. You know, has has a, has a place where it can thrive and interact and flourish and uh, and enjoy itself and and uh, contribute to uh, this this kind of larger project, this meta project, which we're only a small part of, but this larger project of creating a true planetary culture. So I'm excited to be launching that as well. Uh, it's, if it works, it's going to be fantastic, I think. And if it doesn't work, it will still, you know, we'll still learn something and, you know, just keep going. 
because uh, we got to do what we got to do. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I think that actually that's the last part, part that I want to say is that, you know, this bigger project, the theory of everybody, to me, it's, I really see it as a work of art. You know, I see it as art and uh, it's collective art, collaborative art, it's social art, it's social poetics. And so, you know, it's coming partly out of my brain, but it's coming from a lot of other places as well. And, and whatever people bring to it is going to be what it is. So anything you want to say in, in closing, Jeremy? Oh, goodness. I, I don't think I could. I mean, just that was perfect. <laughs> but that, uh, that summed up a lot of what I wanted to say. Um, but just, I guess, as a, as a, as a nuance to that, an affirmation of that, you know, we're building a kind of media ecology and, uh, and, and I want to build a, a healthy and a happy one where there's a diversity of voices and everyone supporting each other. And, uh, we can kind of create a more cooperative atmosphere. So, you know, any way you want to support us, any way we can support you, the listeners, the participants, the members of this culture, you know, we all kind of lift each other up together. Um, and so, you know, we, we create the space that we want to see in the world as cheesy as that cliche is, but you know, that's what we're doing here. And, um, if you want to help us, uh, you know, we really appreciate that in any way, whether it's a share or, uh, you know, financial contribution, uh, you know, attention is, is a new kind of currency these days with, with the new media. So, you know, the kind of community we want to build, the kind of landscape we want to create, it's up to us to kind of create it together in a kind of cooperative and participatory way. Uh, so, you know, the networks we want to see in the world are the ones that we build through our attention and through our participation. So I'm hoping to build a really cool, thriving, and uh, global one. So um, I'm hoping that we reach people all over the world and they reach us and we create interesting stuff together, both artistically and in every other way. All right. Thank you, Jeremy. And thanks to Chris Sabrisky for the awesome music once again. He makes this music available through a Creative Commons license, kind of open source, which means that it can be used in projects like this. And I really appreciate that. Once again, if you'd like to join Winter of Origins and read the ever-present origin with us, go to litgeeks.com where you can sign up. If uh, this particular event is ended and we've already read the book, uh, we're probably reading something else. So uh, come and check out what we're reading now. You can also go to infiniteconversations.fm for more podcasts. Jeremy has his podcast and we are working on others as well. And finally theoryofeverybody.com is where you can learn about the overall project. It's the home of our meta-ideas, as well as our gift economy. So if you feel moved to, you can support our work while helping us create this platform. Thanks again for listening. If you have any comments or questions, I'd love to hear them, and would love to have you join the conversation.